me invite you to turn your Bibles to the book of Jude. If you're having trouble finding it, it is the book right before Revelation, so second to last book of the New Testament. And I'm going to disappoint those of you who thought we were going to read the whole thing like we did the last two Lord's Days. I'm going to read verses 1 through 5 and then 17 through 25 from this book. Before we hear God's word read, let's go to him asking for his help. O Lord, we thank you for your word. We pray that your word will be the joy and the rejoicing of our hearts. In Christ's name, amen. Hear now the word of God. Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to those who are called Beloved in God the Father and kept for Jesus Christ, may mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. For certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation, ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. Now I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus, who saved a people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. Picking up at verse 17. But you must remember, beloved, the predictions of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. They said to you in the last time there will be scoffers following their own ungodly passions. It is these who cause divisions, worldly people, devoid of the Spirit. But you, beloved, building yourselves up in your most holy faith, And praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. And have mercy on those who doubt. Save others by snatching them out of the fire. To others, show mercy with fear, hating even the garment stained by the flesh. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. To the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. Thus far, the reading of God's holy word, and may God add his blessing to the reading of his word. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. At the end of Psalm 147, the psalmist praises God for his nation's privileged status. The psalmist says, God has not dealt thus with any other nation. They do not know his rules. Praise the Lord. In the preceding verses, the psalmist specifies this divine grace. The Lord builds up Jerusalem. The Lord heals the brokenhearted. He lifts up the humble. God strengthens the bars of Zion's gates. And he blesses the children within her walls. He makes peace within her borders. He fills the land with the finest of wheat. At his command, he directs the snow to scatter, like, to scatter frost like ashes. At his word, he melts the snow. He makes the wind blow, and he causes waters to flow. But most importantly, he has given his word to Jacob, his statutes to Israel, his rules to his people. Through Psalm 147, we behold the manifold earthly and spiritual blessings on Israel. 
But someone on the outside might object, of course, unjustly, cry foul and say, that's, that's not fair. Doesn't the Bible call God the God of justice? Why then this favoritism that Israel has its privileged status and no one else does? Well, the Bible is full of this supposed favoritism, but not because God is unjust. Because in his love, God has made a way to show both justice and mercy. And so to him who cries unjust, unfair, we simply invite to see how his plea for justice can be satisfied and how he can be on the receiving end of the blessings of Psalm 147. And the answer is not to look from within, not to look at himself, but to look out to the Son of God. Jesus Christ died for the beloved in God. We saw last week that the unconditional election, the happy truth of God's free grace, reaches out in love to the ones he has called, and the ones he has called saints, and the one he has called beloved. What this means, and here we come to Another hard truth is that not everyone is loved by God in the way that Jude intends in this short letter. There is the beloved and the non-beloved. By allowing all of God's word to speak to this matter, we come to texts in which God affirms his love for all his creatures, his love for all those who are made in his image. Remember Jesus' heart went out to that rich young ruler in Mark 10. Mark says that Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said, you lack one thing. But he wasn't a believer. He went away because he was so fixated on his earthly riches that he was not fixed on heavenly riches in Christ. And we see from John's pen that for God loved the world in this way, that he gave his only begotten Son, that everyone who believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. Oh, how the love of God has been shown mankind. The love of rain falls upon the heads and the lands of the unjust and the just alike. The love of sunshine makes its way through the windows of the wicked. This love of kindness, Paul tells us, is meant to lead the unbeliever to repentance. Do you not know that the kindness of God is meant to move you to see his graciousness, his love? And you're supposed to turn to him in faith. When you have an unbelieving neighbor over for dinner, it is a kindness, however small it might be. When you jumpstart their dead battery, it is an act of love. When the church helps to pay an unbeliever's rent, it's called a benevolence, an act of goodwill. All of God's gracious ways toward the wicked are more than they deserve. This is our Father's world, and he gives good gifts to everyone. And so everyone would do well to count his blessings and to consider the fount of of those blessings. But we cannot escape the discriminating love of God for the beloved. If there is no distinction, 
then why does Jude single out beloved over and over again? Surely there must be some blessings that attend the beloved alone. The multiplication of mercy, peace, and love is among these. We saw these last week. That from his boundless grace, God pours out mercy. He multiplies mercy. He pours out love. He multiplies love. He pours out peace. He multiplies peace. Next two Sundays, we will consider two other graces, the, the, the grace of the irresistible spirit and the grace of perseverance of the saints. To put it simply, the beloved are those who have the gift of this faith that was once for all given to the saints through the Holy Spirit. It is to the beloved that the faith was once for all given That's why he's asking them to contend for this faith. It has been a gift to you. You do not deserve this holy faith. It is a gift from God. And so contend for it. And we, the beloved, then rely and and rest on the authority of God alone, not on our flesh, not on silly dreams, not on our faulty interpretations of what we want God's word to say, but on the word of God through the Spirit. Our trust is not in ourselves, but in God. The beloved, in contrast to the wicked, have the Spirit. In verse 19, speaking of the wicked, he says, it is these who cause divisions, worldly people, devoid of the Spirit. The Spirit cannot be found in dwelling them. The Spirit doesn't inhabit wickedness. He is the Holy Spirit. And so there must be a change of heart. There must be a change of the person. There must be grace given. There must be that declaration of of righteousness. There must be that adoption so that the Spirit can indwell that life that he has regenerated It is the beloved that are spared this woe that we have seen the last two weeks. In verse 11, woe to them. That that pronouncement of future condemnation if you are not trusting in Christ. The beloved don't have that woe upon them. The condemnation no longer abides upon them. Thanks be to God. In a word, the beloved have eternal life in the name of Jesus. The Father has sent his Son to live, to die, and to be raised for them. And then the Father and the Son have given the elect his Holy Spirit to indwell, to empower, to strengthen for a life of godliness. But we come to verse 5. It says, Now I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus, who saved a people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. Now this verse has an exciting manuscript history, which I won't detail for you. But if you have a King James version or a New King James, you will see that the word Jesus is not in there. It's the word Lord. But with recent discoveries, the supposedly earliest manuscripts that we have today have the word Jesus and not Lord. From this 
development from this discovery, we know that some people viewed Jesus doing these things, rescuing the people out of Egypt. Whether this is Lord or Jesus, the warning remains. There was once salvation and then destruction. But how can this be? How can Jesus first save a people and then destroy the same? What is this salvation? Well, Jude reminds us of the divine rescue out of Egyptian slavery. God had taken a people out of a dark, oppressive, and plagued land, and it ushered them into the national kingdom of light, of of liberty, of, of lasting healing. But we know that eternal life comes only to those who believe. Destruction came not to all, but as we see here, to all who did not believe. Destroy those who did not believe. Believe what? Or rather, believe whom? They did not believe the Lord. Which is, of course, irony of ironies. Because it was the Lord who brought them out of Egyptian slavery. So they are content with the earthly rescue, with salvation out of those wicked hands of the Egyptians. They're fine with that. That's what they want. But they don't want to be in the Father's hands. They're thankful for that rescue, freedom. But these people that the Lord, that Jesus destroys, the judges, stopped at the earthly, and even at times longed to return, didn't they? Oh, if we can go back, they had the leeks and the onions. They had food aplenty. They thought it better to be full of stomach and devoid of the Spirit. And so we see that even the non-elect might be in the outward community, part of the covenant overall. There are tares among the wheat. There are goats snuggling up close to the sheep. In Paul's way of speaking, there are those who have once been enlightened, who have once tasted the heavenly gift. They have experienced the powers of the coming age, but they look at the blood of Christ and say, they trample underfoot that blood that precious blood. Glad that they have an earthly rescue, but they don't want the heavenly reality. Not all, are, not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel, we're told. What is Jude calling us to then, O beloved in God, but to a posture of humility? Humble boasting, not haughtiness, is to be the attitude of the saint who's called by the voice of the Father. I don't mean those humble brags that we might notice in other people, that we fail to perhaps perhaps notice in ourselves. You know what a humble brag is? Those humble brags are those ostensibly modest statements whose purpose is to draw out attention or praise from another. 
You see it in those who complain how being so smart is a burden. They just can't make any friends. What a burden of a great intellect. You see it on social media when the young ladies complain at how many guys ask for their numbers. And they say, I just don't get it. I'm in my bum clothes. I just wanted to go for a run and an hour I get four numbers. It's just a burden. Or don't you just hate it when your wedding diamond breaks through the medical glove? You've got to have two gloves. The rock is just too big. Oh, what a trial. Humble brags, no, 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 none of these, none of these will do. These are not true humility, but pride thinly masked. Recently visited one of our shut-ins who was in the hospital. And I, I find this to be the case every single time I, I visit someone who is down on his providence, if you will. I go to ask him how he's doing, and he asks me how I'm doing. I go to bring comfort to his soul, and he is trying to comfort my soul. And he's asking me about how my doctoral work is, is going, and I give him a summary of what I'm finding in John Calvin and what a great guy John Calvin is and what wonderful counsel he offers in these letters and on and on and on. And he didn't intend this as a rebuke, but it was a good reminder. He says, those who pursue advanced degrees, if they come out proud have learned nothing. If you are going to get a degree, if you're going to go into any kind of education, you must come out humble or you've wasted your time. Okay, so you master just a small area of the vastness of God's wisdom and you're going to boast of that. And even that you've not mastered. There's so much about that. It's a lifelong pursuit. What should education do but humble us? How did we come to know Christ but by Christ coming to know us? Dear ones, what did you have that you were not first given? Oh, certainly you you love the Lord. That is your confession. That is what you sing every Lord's Day. That is what you profess every day of the week. But you do not love the Lord unless... He loves you first. Humble boasting. This humble boasting in the Lord considers his work that is done in us as well. Do you examine the faith that was once for all implanted into your spirit? What will you do with that faith? What will you do with that most holy faith that by grace was given you? Will you contend for that holy faith, that you might remain steadfast in your own heart? Will you guard your heart and mind in Christ Jesus? Will you say no to sin and yes to the Savior every time temptation comes? Shall you fight against false teaching, the world, Satan, by by faith, by leaning on the rock of Christ? And do you see the work of the Holy Spirit in you and, and through you? Are you full of the Spirit? Then bear fruit of the Spirit. Bear fruit of love and joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Work on cultivating those godly virtues. 
As Peter tells us in 2 Peter 1, supplement your faith with virtue, knowledge, self-control, steadfastness, godliness, brotherly affection, and love. Or as John the Baptist would say, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Faith is a lively faith. Pray for grace to trust Him more. Pray for more and more measures of the Spirit. Say with David, cast not your spirit from me, O Lord. May he always rest upon me. So there's salvation for the beloved, from God, in Christ the Spirit. But we see also salvation from the beloved. Verses 22 and 23, have mercy on those who doubt, save others by snatching them out of the fire. To others, show mercy with fear, hating even the garment stained by the flesh. So mercy to the doubters, salvation to those near the fire, and to still others, mercy mixed with fear. In these verses, the beloved are agents of salvation mercy. Now in Jude's day, there were some in the covenant community who were debating whether or not to follow the teaching of the false teachers. These loudmouth boasters that we've seen, these blasphemers, why were they tempted? This teaching no doubt sounded plausible to them. It, it must have had a ring of truth to it. It had to have an appearance of light. Or perhaps the teaching toyed with or titillated the passions of a proud heart. It was exactly the kind of teaching that they would, that they would uh, allow to dwell richly in them that they might pervert the grace of God into sensuality and deny the only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. Every age has its doubters. Every church has its members who who question the truth of Christ. What is the responsibility of those who do not doubt? Of those who contend for the faith firmly? What is to be our posture? What is to be our motive? Our action? It is mercy. Mercy leads the way, mercy in the middle, and then mercy closes out the day. It is mercy, mercy, mercy. After all, God has multiplied his mercy to you. And as the beloved experience the multiplied mercy from the beloved Son of God, then we reach out with mercy on all who are touched by the sparks of hellfire. As God has been patient and gracious to us who have certainly doubted, we are called to be patient and gracious to those who need biblical assurance. Ours is a ministry of salvation. Not because we are little saviors. No, no, certainly not. May it never be. There is only one name under heaven given among men by which man must be saved. It is the name of Jesus Christ. We are not saviors. And so we are not little Christs. But as we contend for and speak much of the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ, what are we doing but but giving others the only way that their doubts can be answered with certainty? We are giving them the only way of salvation. We're saying, here he is, boundless of mercy. Our mercy ministry is one that takes very seriously the hellish destination of all those who are outside of Christ. And the older I get, the colder I get. 
And I don't think it's just my Phoenician blood longing for the Arizona sunshine to warm up my body in just a matter of seconds, which it will. I love warmth. Love warmth like Buddy the Elf loves syrup. And last week at date night, I got in the car and I turned on the heat. And my wife's like, what are you doing? I was like, mm, warmth, that's good. Just let it wash over my face. I was cold. And I don't know what you, how you feel about this, but we've already moved to flannel sheets at my direction. It had to be flannel sheets. It had to stay warm. Warmth is one thing, but heat is, is quite another, isn't it? And that's a balance that the Arizona sun has had difficulty striking over her many years of life. But with the language of fire here, Jude surely recalls our, our minds the everlasting burning in hell. My brother has been a firefighter for many years, and now he's a captain. In his decades of fighting fires, he has saved many people. And for him, it was both a duty and a privilege. Fighting fires is always bittersweet. The firefighters get to do their job, the thing that they were trained for. It's, it's exciting for them. The adrenaline is rushing through their veins, and they get to destroy what tries to destroy lives and homes. But their job also means that someone is having a really horrible day, to say the least. One of the things that my brother told me about Phoenix Fire Department is they're told to salvage as much as they can. As they go into a particular house fire, they're told to keep safe as much as they can, not just to destroy everything that's in the way. Of course, people and pets are number one and number two priorities, but if you don't need to destroy the armoire, what are you doing? Just don't, don't just hack away. Salvage what can be saved. Of course, fighting fires is a very dangerous job. As these endanger their lives with the flames in the building. Fighting spiritual fires is likewise dangerous as we endanger ourselves by exposing ourselves to the deceit of sin, to the false teaching, to the conduct that has given in to sinful desire. What we're told here is to hate the garment, that article of clothing that is worn next to the skin, so stained by the flesh. We do not buy into the dangerous doctrines of demons, lest we too need saving. But with the rope of righteousness tied to our belt of truth, we enter boldly that spiritual house fire, and we allow the sin to be consumed by the fire, caught up in judgment. But we save the one from eternal ruin. Why? Because ours is a ministry of love. As the Puritan Richard Allen says, love is to a saint what malice is to Satan, that which gives force to all his actings. Love motivates all that we do, or at least it ought to, because love motivated Christ in all that he did. Love first to the Father, and love second to the elect, to those that the Father has given him. Move with mercy for those who not only doubted, 
but who denied him. Moved with mercy for those who who once were not his beloved, but rather his hateful enemies. Moved with love, he took on the garment of sin, hating it all the while, but bearing it on the cross. Moved with love, he snatched us out of the fire by going through the pains of hell on that cross. Moved with love, he rescued us from the devil's inflamed grips, and he brought us to a place of mercy, love, and peace. Moved with love, he came out of that fire himself by rising from the dead to the glory of the Father and for our life in him. What wondrous love is this in the beloved. Amen. Let's pray. Our gracious God, we thank you for this love that you have given us in the Son through the Spirit, and we pray that we would cherish it more and more, that we would praise you for it more and more, that we would conduct ourselves in a way that shows that we have been loved by our wonderful God. Transform us, we pray, by your Spirit, from one degree of glory to another. Amen.